Last week, we, Uncle Ray finished up really a, a background primer on the Bible, which I thought was very edifying over the last three weeks. So many things we take for granted as Christians, especially when we're dealing with the Word of God. And we sit here week after week, day after day, reading it, but we don't really have a comprehension of where it came from. And I thought that was very edifying. Um, we're going to be looking at some different Bible verses today. But as you can see written up on the board, we are going to be looking, starting this week and continuing on the next couple weeks, looking at the essence or the substance of God and then his attributes. So essence and substance are synonymous with one another, but yet essence and attributes are different. So when you use the word essence of God or the attributes of God, you're talking about two different things. Now, before we continue on, let, let me go ahead and define what essence or substance is. The terms essence or substance, again, are synonymous when used of God. They are defined as that which underlies all outward manifestations or reality itself. This refers to the basic aspect of God's nature. If there was no substance or essence, there would be no attributes. So we say essence and not existence because existence would carry on the connotation that God was created or had a beginning. And let me uh, give you this uh, quote here by Thomas Aquinas. He says this, essence answers to what a thing is. So what we're going to try to define here today is what is the essence or what makes up the essence of God, or what is the substance of God? Again, Aquinas says, essence answers to what a thing is, while existence or being answers that it is, or the fact that it exists. So again, essence answers to what a thing is. That's what we're trying to define here, looking at the essence of God. Ligonier says this, God has an essence. The divine essence, but the divine essence is unique, for God is the only divine being, and thus God actually is his essence. Further, while we may distinguish his divine attributes, we may not separate, uh, separate them. In the essence of God, his mind is his will, is his power, and so on. So I know this can get convoluted very easily, and it can escape our minds Quite quickly, But again, as we're looking at the essence of God, it's what or who God is. What makes God, God? That's the question I have. What makes God, God? So again, kind of to drive home the point here of essence. So we have the essence of God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share the same essence or substance. It's the God the, the divine essence, all right? So let me give you an example here. In the early church, in about 325, there was a, a debate that led really to the Council of Nicaea, which I think most of us have probably heard of the Council of Nicaea. But Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, was really the primary driver of this council. And the difficulty with this debate at Nicaea was over the essence or the nature or the substance of Christ. And I'm going to give you this example. I think it'll, uh, it'll help you here. So you don't have to memorize these words, but you, perhaps, again, you may have uh, heard of these words before, but 
You have the term homoousios and homoiousios. Now, they're both Greek terms. So what the Arians were saying under uh, uh, Arius is that Christ had a different essence or different substance as compared to the Father. So he was similar, but he was not the same essence. He was not the same divine essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Arians, if you recall, kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses of today, were saying that Christ was a great and powerful being. He was the firstborn over all creation, but he was the firstborn. He was the first great creature, or Catissus, the first creation of God. But the orthodox viewpoint of Athanasius and thank the Lord of the church and under the supervision, I guess you could say, of also Constantine is homoousius, is that Christ is the same divine substance or essence as the Father. And that's the orthodox position. And we're going to go through here today, we're going to use the term characteristics of the essence or the substance of God. So again, if if your mind's a little stretched here, bear with me, and I think uh, you'll be edified as we go through here today. So again, the essence or the substance is what God is. What makes God, God? And we have to, again, separate that from attributes, because attributes are kind of a, a displaying of the characteristics of God, as we'll talk in the next couple of weeks. The, the attributes of love, the attributes of justice, the attributes of, of uh, divine sovereignty, as we're going to go through, that is different than divine substance and essence. Did I make that clear as, as best as I possibly could? Anyone have any questions or need further clarification? Again, essence is what God is, what makes God, God. First one here is I have, uh, my math is correct, seven different characteristics of the essence of God. So this Because of who God is, this, in effect, is what the characteristics or characteristics he would have to have, all right? So the first one is spirituality. God is a substance. However, he is not made up of physical particles, but spirit. And we're going to be looking at different scriptures today. John 4, 24. Let me just go here real quickly. Christ says this. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is not made up of physical particles. He's not made up of things that are created from around us. God is spirit. Again, that is part of his essence. Because God is infinite, he has to be spirit. He is immaterial. It is only logical that if God is spirit... He does not have flesh and bones. He is not made up of physical particles, again, as we are. James P. Boy stated, God is the creator of spirits. Spirit is the highest order of existence. And its creator must himself have the nature which belongs to that order. And again, we kind of know the basic makeup of nature. We have animals which are just physical beings, then we have humans, which are physical and spiritual, and then we have the angelic hosts who are almost always spiritual. 
And again, we know from that is spiritual is the highest order. When we die, our, our bodies are going to go into the ground until the day of the resurrection. But our spirits or our souls will continue on forever under the power of God. So spirit is of the highest, the highest order. And James P. Boyce is saying is that if spirit's of the highest order, then it's only logical for God to be of that order. And if God is spirit, <clears throat> then God would have to be invisible. If God is spirit, he would then have to be invisible. Let's look here real quick at um, the Ten Commandments. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you would, we'll be here for a, for a minute or two. And this is God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on the mount. And we have the first, uh, first four commandments here. Let me go ahead and read this. Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these works saying, excuse me, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Keep that in mind. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down unto them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So again, we see here God revealing himself to the children of Israel, saying, you shall have no other graven or carved images before me. Why is that? That's not rhetorical. Why is it that God did not want to have, or commanded that the Israel should not have graven or carved images before them? Yeah, correct. Is there's nothing in this material world that could compare to God. Because he's invisible, we have no comprehension to be able, the, the most beautiful grandeur in all of the world, the seven wonders of the world are nothing in comparison to the almighty and powerful God. And we see here God telling the children of Israel, you shall have no graven images before me because nothing can represent me on this earth. However, what is fascinating is that in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So there was one, Jesus Christ, his son, that did come and was the image of the invisible, the invisible God. And we kind of see the same similarities. Most of the mainline Abrahamic religions believe this to be true. Jews would tend to say God is spirit, and so would Muslims. But then again, we see in the Old Testament something kind of striking. You may be thinking to yourself, well, there's plenty of examples in the Old Testament where God has these human characteristics. We'll look at some of these examples here. We have God having arms. We have God having hands, eyes, etc. God walking, as we saw in the garden. Uh, does someone want to read Isaiah 65 too? Tom, would you read Genesis 3.8 when I tell you? Could you get the Genesis 3.8? And then uh, would someone want to read Exodus 2.23 and 24? So Isaiah 65.2. 
and then Exodus 2, 23 and 24. Right, go ahead. You, you want to read? Go ahead. Thank you. Bryce, you have Isaiah 65. Tom, do you have uh, Genesis 3.8? Thank you. So those are just three of probably dozens and dozens of verses we see in the Old Testament that give us characteristics of God that appear that he is as us, that he has physical characteristics, physical manifestations. We saw, as Tom says, it appears that God has feet where he's walking in the garden. And we see in Isaiah 65, God has hands. Exodus 2, 23 and 24 the Lord heard the prayer of the children of Israel as they're in captivity. Does that also mean that God has ears? Well, not necessarily. Henry Theosin says this. Well, I would say not necessarily, no. Emphatically, no. Henry Theosin says this. This is anthropomorphic language. It is symbolic and is a representation which serves to make God real and to express his various interests, powers, and activities. So God is spirit. God is invisible. But we're given these details, in the Old Testament especially, I think importantly, to help us, God condescending into our ignorance and into our language, to give us understanding and help when he is displaying his power. So that does not mean that God has all these physical characteristics. It's anthropomorphic language. That's a great word. Anthropomorphic language. Anthro meaning human. So it's human language, God mercifully condescending to us and helping us understand. Now, let me just uh, take a brief rabbit hole here this morning. Bryce told me, or maybe Chase told me, not to go down any rabbit holes, but I can't help myself. But I do think this, again, is helpful. Is There is one main line, they would call themselves Christian, but one main line branch or religious branch that uh, the Mormons, who actually would say is that God has physical characteristics. They would not necessarily hold to the way that we view God. Now, let me, uh, let me just read this. This is from Joseph Smith. So, Mormons believe there was a time when God was not God. He was actually once a man. Joseph Smith said, God himself was once as we are now. It is the first principle of the gospel to know of certainty or for certainty the character of God. That he was once a man like us. Yeah, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. A later prophet of Mormonism summarized the doctrine in a famous saying, 
As man now is, God once was. Let me give you that full quote. This was by Lorenzo Snow, who was the head prophet or president of the Church of the Latter-day Saints in the late 1800s. He says this, As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. And again, we see this language of the Mormon church from Joseph Smith, from this Lorenzo Snow and others, is that they believe that God has physical characteristics. Now, I was doing some background study yesterday, looking at different Mormon resources and stuff, and uh, they don't officially canonize or make doctrine as to what Lorenzo uh, Snow had said. They call it deep theology. They say that that's deep theology. That's kind of getting into the weeds of things, but they don't deny it. They don't deny it. So again, they are actually canonizing and giving God these physical characteristics that as we are now, God once was, as God now is, we can be. And what's interesting is that later portion of us becoming gods as they use uh, Romans chapter 8, us becoming sons of gods, and we'll be able to rule with Christ. But I think that just really misconstrues the lines as... It almost appears that they're elevating themselves to deity. We have to remember is that we'll rule with Christ, but he's still over us. We're still finite, small and and inconceivably ignorant creatures, but we'll be ruling with Christ, but under Christ. He is still our sovereign and our God. So I thought that may be helpful for you is uh, we know... There's, quite, there's like 20 million Mormons in the United States, and uh, it's, it's actually a rapidly growing institution. Um, and what's interesting is two years ago, I was out in Salt Lake City for an investment conference, and there was this guy I was speaking with for a couple of days, and very nice. I, I didn't really like drink at the conference. Well, I didn't drink at the conference, and he didn't either. So I knew there was kind of like a, a difference, and uh, the last night he told me he was a Mormon. So he took me all around Salt Lake City. I mean, that's like uh, going to Mecca and being having a tour guide as a Muslim or going to Jerusalem and having a Jew tour you around. So I had a Mormon that was uh, taking me all around Salt Lake City and going to the tabernacle and stuff. But we had a great conversation, but he really tried to masquerade himself as a Christian, and uh, it's just not. Their, their viewpoints are far out. So that was a rabbit hole, but I think nonetheless, uh, nonetheless helpful. Anyone have any comments or questions? Yeah, good point. Teresa just said that when they were flying through Salt Lake City, there was two Mormon girls behind them, and they were memorizing scripture. And uh, I think that's a good point, is, is that, as, as others are, we, we need to be uh, memorizing God's word. Yes, Uncle Ray.
Yeah. Yep. Yeah, good job. Well, I think too is um, going along those lines, like in Genesis chapter two, when man's made in the image of God. I mean, it's it's not like we're wholly other from God. We we would share similar characteristics. I don't want to go step off the ranch by any stretch of the imagination, but we see commonalities, as it were. Of course, we're entirely separate from the infinite, but uh, we're made in the image of God. That, that we know for sure. Yes, Harriet. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua is before um, Jericho, left me left me uh, my mind blank there for a second. But as Joshua is before Jericho, the commander of the armies of the Lord with the sword was standing before Joshua. And uh, Joshua fell on the ground. And the word net there, I was actually looking at that yesterday, does not necessarily mean worshipped. If you look at that word bow, you know, Abraham bowed before Pharaoh. It's the same word. But nonetheless, there was someone greater there than Joshua. The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnated Christ. We see that throughout the New Testament. Uh, very good point, Harriet. Anything else? Let me just read these two verses. Deuteronomy 4.15. So watch yourself carefully, since you did not see any form on the day of the Lord spoken to you at Horeb. From the midst of the fire. And then John 1.18. John says this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Let me just go a little further here. So how do we explain then the case of Moses seeing God? If God is invisible. How was it that at Mount Sinai. Moses was able to see some portion or some part of God. Flip over if you're still in Exodus here. We'll read uh, Exodus 33, 17. As Moses, I think this is the second time he's getting the Ten Commandments after he chucked them at the children of Israel the first time. Exodus 33, 17. So we see uh, Moses is in the presence of God. Again, have... As Uncle Ray said, how that exactly works is he, he appeared to be closer in the presence of God than, than we are now, in effect. But let me go ahead and read verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know your name. And I love this, what Moses said here. And he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
Now, this passage opens up so many cans of worms, in my view. There are so many aspects of just mystery here. We see God saying he has a face, God putting his hand over the rock, my glory will pass by. It's quite incredible. Um, Let me read this quote here by uh, S.R. Driver. He stated, it has been the, what passed by Moses, the afterglow of God. The afterglow, I thought that was a striking word. The afterglow of God is what Moses was in the midst of. And I don't think Moses actually even looked at that. I think he was probably facing inward in the rock, and it was only after the afterglow of God passed by is that Moses' face shone like the sun. Isn't that just remarkable? Think here, just contemplate for a second the presence of God. We know that, obviously, that God exists. God is, God is light, as we see here in Genesis chapter 33. But yet, he's not made up of particles of light, as we would think of light. We know that we can see the afterglow of God, but it's not any physical particles. I think the more you think about it, just the more absurd and sublime it becomes, and the more you kind of just... Your head just explodes. The secret things of... Exactly. But nonetheless, it's still so incredible just to, to think about it. You can't think about it for long, again, because you just go insane. But the moments that, that we can actually think about it are just, are just surreal. The invisibility of the Spirit, the, the, uh, the immaculate power of God. So, um, again, the afterglow of God. We see, again see that we cannot see God face to face lest we die. But then, Revelation chapter 22, it does appear that, you know, in, after the, maybe even in heaven, but after the day of the resurrection, we'll be in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of God for all time. So, I, I, I don't know, but again, I think it's going to be far grander and greater than, than we could ever know. Uh, And the next one is God is alive. So he's not an impersonal force. He's not impersonal. We may fall into a faulty idea that God is a spirit or that he may be innate. Life implies feeling, power, and activity, which God wholly partakes of. God is an active God. Every single day we see his activity, bringing the sun up from the east, setting it in the west. It is only his hand, his activity, that all of us in here have breath and life. Let me read uh, Isaiah 44 here. Isaiah 44, 14 to 17, just as an example of the life of God. Isaiah 44, 14 to 17. And again, this is kind of Isaiah jesting at the futility of idols. He says this in verse 14. He cuts down cedars for himself. This is the idolatrous man. He cuts down cedars for himself, and he takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and rain nourishes it. Then it will be for a man to burn, for he would take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it into the fire. With half of it, he eats meat. He roasts a roast. And is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, 
I am worn. I have seen the fire. And listen, verse 17. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it. Prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are a god. Can you see the hardness of man's heart, the, the futility of our mind? Taking a tree, using half of it to cook our meat, and the other half carving it to make it into a dead and nullified idol. But yet we see that we serve the alive and the living God. Yes. Very often. Anything else? All right, so God is alive. So we've looked at three of the characteristics. I got about 10 minutes left here, so I, I probably won't get through it all. Um, but God is a person. What do we mean by this? God is self conscious. There is a difference between being conscious and self conscious. The brute beast is conscious of things around them. Like God, humans have a self consciousness. Again, let me read some scripture here for context. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Moses at the burning bush. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, What? I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. We see this self-consciousness of God. He's not an impersonal force. Exodus 22, I am the Lord your God. We see God obviously and clearly has knowledge of himself. He is alive. He is a, he is a person. He has personal qualities. He's, he's alive. He has a self-conscience as we do. Okay, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. Scientific America says this. To be conscious is to think. To be self-aware is to realize that you are thinking, or that you are a thinking being, and to think about your thoughts. Meaning, let me read that again. To be conscious is to think. So, to be conscious is to think. Do animals think? Yes. Yes. Remember our conversation maybe a couple weeks ago, as we were talking about the difference between man and creatures we have the killer whale and the ape who are brilliant animals they can think they can do very complex things yet they don't have a conscience they don't have self-awareness they can think but let me go a little deeper here they can't think that they are thinking while we as humans can think that we are thinking again it seems complex but it's, it's really not we realize that we are self-aware. We realize that we're thinking. It's quite remarkable, and that's the same with God. He's self-conscious. or conscious. He's self-aware. And again, I think that goes back to Genesis chapter 2, made in the image of God, how we see aspects of humanity that are shown uh, in, in, the divine, in the divine nature, and that, again, sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdoms. Other characteristics of being is that God has a will. So we all in here have a will. Me raising my hand up right now is proof that 
I have a will. Walking or going to get a drink. If I'm thirsty, I'm going to go get a drink. I'm fulfilling my will. I'm fulfilling my, my desires and my satisfactions. And we see that with God. Is that God has obviously the ultimate will as a person or as a, as a being does. He does as he pleases. We see this in Romans 8, 26 and 28. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, we see, stress it again, God is not an impersonal force. He is living, he's conscious, he has a will, and he's always actively fulfilling that will. Anyone have any comments or questions? All right, moving right along here. So we've seen that God is spirit, God is invisible, he's alive, he's a person. Next we see that God is self-existent. Again, we probably take this for granted, but let's explain it a little further. He is dependent upon no one other than himself. Thomas Aquinas famously said, he is the first cause, himself uncaused. A couple weeks ago, the, uh, the apologetic, the, the uh, law of causality, everything has a cause. I have a cause because my parents are here. My parents are here because of the grandparents. And we go on down the line. Everyone, everything has a cause. Yet, there has to be something that's self-existent. There has to be something that's eternal. There has to be the ultimate or the first cause, and that first cause is God himself. What, happen if, what happens if there's no first cause? Exactly. There's, and there's absolutely nothing. Then there's absolutely nothing. So God, the self-existent God, is the first cause. Look at your ministry says this. This uncaused cause must have the power of being within himself. It must exist in and of itself. This cause must be eternal. For that which does not exist cannot later bring itself into existence. Moreover, this cause must be personal, for an impersonal one could not create personal beings. Only a personal, self-existent God can answer this question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? We're personal beings, so it would only be logical is that the first cause is also a personal being. And if, he, if we're existing now, then something has to be eternal. There's no such thing as spontaneous combustion. What's funny is that back in the 1800s, scientists thought they had finally discovered how the universe came about. It's because there's always a mystery, is how did tadpoles end up in water? They didn't have any idea how they appeared, they just appeared. And they thought it was spontaneous combustion. And that's how they basically hypothesized the universe came into existence. They thought if tadpoles could just spontaneously appear in the pool, then life around us could just spontaneously appear out of nothing. But it's illogical. Something cannot come out of nothing. Because if there was ever a time that there was nothing, what would there currently be now? Nothing. Exactly. So again... 
It is simple. It is simple. But yet, we see all around us in the universities and in our society at large that the uh, simple often, often uh, befuddles people. But that's the 1 Corinthians chapter 1 problem. Uh, John 8, 56, and 59, or 56 to 59, Christ says this, and I'll wrap up here. John uh, 8, 56 to 59. This is Jesus uh, confronting the Pharisees. I think one of the grandest chapters in the Bible, especially this portion here. 56 to 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ ascribing to himself self-existent deity for all time. He, John chapter 1, was in the beginning with God. Hebrews chapter 1, that God created all things through Christ. The self-existent God. Let me just wrap up here. Theosin makes a pertinent point. God is not self-existent because he wills to be self-existent. Just because he says to be self-existent does not mean he is. He he is self-existent because of the necessity of his nature. Again, he is the uncaused cause of all. God did not just whimsically say one day, I'm going to be self-existent or I'm going to be eternal. No, eternality, self-existence is his essence. His essence. All of these, because of God, him being the divine, out of necessity, he has to be all of these things. For if he was not one of these things, he would not be God. It is only logical that if God is God, he has to be spirit, self-existent, immense, a person, alive, invisible, and eternal. I have some more to go, but uh, we'll get done a couple minutes early here. Uh, Does anyone have any comments or questions before we close? Oh, yes. Um, That was the Council of Nicaea. So the argument was from the Arians, basically think of them as the modern-day Jehovah Witnesses, is that Christ was the first creation. So they were saying, Homoousius, he was of similar essence to God. But the Orthodox viewpoint, the Athanasius, and the, thankfully, the viewpoint that the church took was Homoousius, which is he is of the same essence of God. If he was of similar essence, John chapter 8, verse 57 and 58 would not be true. His essence is the same as the Father. He is divine. And uh, that goes into the blending of, of uh, the, the, uh, the deity and the human nature. That's a whole other study. But Jesus Christ is of the same essence as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Did I answer your question? All right. Well, if, uh, if that's all, if you have any other questions, then.